following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. I do realize that we've only just passed Thanksgiving on the civic calendar. And on the shopping calendar, we are well into the heart of Christmas by now. But on the church's calendar, which orders our worship together today, is like New Year's Eve. For today is the final Sunday of the year, and on this day, this New Year's Eve, we try to do at least two things. To end the year with the exaltation of Christ, the culmination of all of Christ's presence and activity, and to set the stage to begin the story again in the new year, beginning next Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. Before we start the new year in Advent, as we wait and prepare for the full arrival of God's new world, first we end the current year with this day, this Christ the King or Reign of Christ Sunday. On this day, we proclaim Christ's strength and Christ's sovereignty. And to be frank, we wrestle with the limitations of our language. For the truth is for many of us, myself included, there is just something about the word king that can be difficult. The word king carries an awful lot of baggage. In fact, at the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 34, the prelude to today's first reading, the prophet there struggles with some of that baggage. It's been carried around for a long, long time, trying to reclaim the image of a king. For the community around Ezekiel and throughout our scriptures, king and shepherd are almost synonymous. Kings are supposed to behave like good shepherds. Kings are supposed to tend their flock and feed and provide and protect and accompany their people. And yet, almost always, kings behave badly instead, tending only themselves, their own selfish desires and wants, feeding themselves while they scatter and abandon their flock. According to some parts of our scriptures, behaving badly, in fact, is inevitable, unavoidable for kings. All the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people first demand of Samuel, their leader at the time, give us a king like all the other nations have, Samuel is reluctant. And God convinces him to comply with that request, but also to give a clear warning telling them what the king will do. And so Samuel gathers the people together and tells them, this is how the king will rule over you. He will take your sons and use them for his military to do his plowing and harvesting to make his weapons and chariots. He will take your daughters and use them to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves and give them to his friends. He will take your servants and your livestock and make them to do his work. He will take your flocks and you will become his slaves. Now notice the verbs in that paragraph of warning. Kings take, kings use. It's true both in our scriptures and throughout human history that kings fight and kings abuse, kings colonize and kings enslave. And so we might reasonably wonder today, why in the world would we want to call Christ a king? Jesus himself refused the title of king. In John chapter 6, when he senses that folks around him are about to make him their king, he runs away from them to go be alone. So what do we do with this image of Christ as king? 
How do we navigate a day like today, this Christ the King or Reign of Christ Sunday, so loaded with baggage right here at the end of the church year? For whatever it's worth, I would suggest that we begin simply, by simply acknowledging the truth that King, King is entirely too violent a title to attach to Jesus. I know that gets a little complicated by the fact that the Gospels use this language frequently, both king and kingdom, when talking about Jesus and his actions and his teaching, but whenever they do so, at every single turn, Jesus always is upending and redefining that language, inviting us to expand our imaginations beyond what that old language has always meant. The old language is useful only because it's familiar, but it's always pointing toward something surprising, something entirely, entirely new. My kingdom does not originate from this world, Jesus says to Pilate, the representative of Rome's king, toward the end of his life in the Gospel of John. For a kingdom is a patch of land, land outlined by a border, a border secured by military force. And Jesus is talking about and has been living toward something else entirely a different world, a different way of living in the world, an entirely new reality that has no need of kings or any other authoritarians or any military. You say that I am a king, Jesus says, in that same conversation with Pilate, but I wasn't born for that. I was born, Jesus says, to testify to the truth, to the truth that God is not some dictator sitting on a throne somewhere to the truth that all of our systems of power and domination are not accurate reflections of God's way of being in the world, to the truth that God's power is not expressed in oppression, but God's power is expressed in presence. God is not in any palace. God is in the street. God is in the prison. God is in the hospital. God is in the refugee camp. And miraculously, God is in each of us. God is with us here and now. That's what we mean when we proclaim the strength and the sovereignty of Christ today, that God is incarnate and God is in everything. All that was, all that is, all that is to come, all that will be, all that can be, all that we can imagine and all that we cannot even begin to conceive. In short, we say that Christ is king because we want to say that God is exalted and God is powerful. And yet as we do so, crucially we must always remember and remind one another and ourselves that God, God is not a king in any way that is like human kings. At best we use that word king simply because it's the language we've inherited. At worst, we use that language king because it's what we secretly aspire to be, regarded as kings by those around us, exalted and powerful in our workplaces, in our communities, our homes, and our marriages. Especially in the context in which our scriptures were set, kings were warlords, military leaders first and foremost. Kings were those who batter their opponents into submission, and friends, that, that is not God. Kings scheme against their rivals and enslave each other's peoples and take each other's children. That's not God either. 
Unfortunately, we just lack the language to describe God or Christ or their new world in other terms, in terms other than human terms. Christ transcends our language and our self-seeking ambitions and our self-aggrandizing titles. And so we need new language for Christ, for God, for the Holy Spirit. We need language and imaginations not rooted in violence or vengeance or slaughter or domination. For we cannot just substitute one dominant party for another. God's power, Christ's presence, subverts domination altogether. Consider today's gospel, that parable of the sheep and the goats, sometimes called the judgment of all the nations. If we are stuck in thinking about God or Christ like we think about human kings, then our attention is likely to be drawn to the judgment in that story, the separation, the rewards, and the punishments. But if our imaginations will allow it, then we can look and we can listen to that story more deeply. We can notice that the king doesn't just sit back on a throne and judge folks. Before that, always, the king shows up with folks and in folks, especially among the least of these, the least noticed, the least considered, the least cared for, the least acknowledged, the least regarded as the beloved children of God that they are. Now, what sort of king does that? What sort of king shows up like that? What sort of king exercises power not by dominating others, but by humiliating self? What sort of king leads like that? Through radical empathy, through incarnational solidarity, specifically among the hungry, the thirsty, the immigrant, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. Yet that's how God behaves in our first reading today, too. The Lord God proclaims in Ezekiel 34, I myself will search for my flock and seek them out. God gets involved personally and intimately in ways that human kings never would do. Notice the verbs again throughout Ezekiel 34. And notice specifically how different they are from the verbs in 1 Samuel chapter 8. God is not taking and using as human kings and authoritarians do. Instead, speaking in the first person, God says, I will search, I will seek, I will rescue, I will gather, I will bring, I will feed. I myself, God says, will feed my flock and give them rest. I will seek out the lost, bring back the strays, bind up the wounded, strengthen the weak. I will tend my sheep with justice. God's power burst the bounds of our imaginations, showing us what true power is. Power is not for pushing down. Power is for lifting up. Power is not for indulging ourselves. Power is for empowering others. Power is not to be fearfully guarded and held, but freely and equally shared. Power is not wielded as a weapon from up above, but bubbles up from among. Power is not the freedom for us to get our own way. Power is the freedom to be present with each other, and especially where Christ the King chooses to be. Not high and exalted, glistening in gold, but down on the floor, in the dirt, in the fields, at the borders, even under siege. And so today, on this last Sunday of the church year, 
before we begin again. Today is an opportunity for us to use our sanctified imaginations and to call God by different names, by names or titles that allow us to relate, to connect, to encounter, but without reducing God to paradigms we know have failed. All our words, whatever words, will be inadequate, of course, because God always is more. But can we find language for God's powerful presence beyond language that is rooted in enslavement and in violence, language like Lord and Master and King? If your relationship with your parents has been a loving one, then maybe parental language can be helpful, mother and or father for God or language that reminds us of any of God's many roles. We can call God shepherd of the flock or provider for the hungry, companion of the lonely, the one who brings life, who calls us by name, who moves between us with love. Or we can call God by a title that affirms where God is, call God immigrant or prisoner. What words, what images, what titles do you choose to speak about and to God? God is the one who holds us, who knows us, who connects us with all creation. God is life. God is love. God is liberation. God is the power moving us to do good, the the source of love springing up within us, the creativity pouring outward from us. Or maybe something Trinitarian that affirms God's community. Call God sovereign, savior, and shelter. Or author and word and translator, or creator, redeemer and sustainer, or parent, partner and friend. Whichever words that you choose, whichever names or titles that you use, as we head now toward Advent and begin telling the story again, by God's grace, may we know and affirm, God is available, God is present, God is incarnate among each and all. God is the one who is three, who is one, who is filling us and this whole world with goodness. God is. God was. God always will be. So thanks be to our God of many names. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.